The following sermon is brought to you by Capital Community Church, located in Raleigh, North Carolina. Capital Community Church is a people awakened to a holy God. If you are searching for a new church home, or from out of town looking for a church to worship with, or simply seeking for answers, please join us for worship at 1045 a.m. every Sunday morning and 6 o'clock p.m. for our evening service. If you have any questions, please email us at info at We pray this sermon will help you grow deeper in your walk with Jesus Christ. I would like to invite you to open your Bibles to John chapter 12. John chapter 12. New chapter in the Gospel of John. I'm going to read verses 1 to 8. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him said, why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus said, Leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Let me explain to you the the major theme of this passage. This passage appears also in two parallel uh, sections in Matthew and Mark. And really, first, Matthew tells us, this is Matthew 26, 12, that it's about the preparation of Christ for his death. He says, in pouring this ointment on my body, Jesus says, she has done it to prepare me for burial. And then the second major theme of this passage, and this is the theme that I really want us to look at and focus on, is it shows us what true devotion to Christ looks like, what true worship to Christ looks like looks like. Jesus says, this is Matthew 26, 13, truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. So Jesus takes this picture of Mary anointing his feet, and the other gospel writers tell us his head, and he says, this is a picture of devotion. This is a picture of what worship should like, so that whenever the gospel is proclaimed throughout the entire earth, this woman will be the archetype of devotion. What is devotion? I looked it up this week in the dictionary. There's several definitions, but it could be defined as loyalty, faithfulness, and then in terms of religion, affection, worship, adoration. When you get up in the morning, do any of y'all have a morning devotion? 
or maybe a quiet time. What's your devotion? You're saying, if you tell a family member you're at the beach on vacation, you say, I'm going to have my devotions. Now, what do you mean by that? You mean, I'm going to sit with my Bible, I'm going to read the Bible, I'm going to pray, and I'm going to spend time with God. It's time that is devoted to who? God. And what Jesus is saying is, is that this woman's actions are a picture of what the devoted life to Christ should look like. Now listen to these texts, these cross-references. This is Mark chapter 12, verse 30. Jesus says this, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. What he's saying is, is that God's expectation for you is not to have part of your heart. It's all of your heart, all of your mind, all of your soul, all of your strength. Everything who you are is to be devoted to who he is. Paul says the same thing. Remember, this is uh, Romans chapter 12, famous verse. Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, therefore, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. He says, you present your body. Question, when they would sacrifice an animal in the Old Testament, how much of the animal would they sacrifice? Part of it or all of it? All of it. Paul's saying that's the picture of your Christian life, is that all of it is to be given, devoted to him, all of it, all of it. I praise God that when I was a youth, when I was a student, God really got hold of my heart very early on, junior high, high school. It's never too early to become devoted to Christ. And I read this book, I think it was in ninth or 10th grade, called My Heart, Christ Home. And it was a very simple book. And basically, the theme of the book is that your heart has rooms in it. And maybe the rooms represent your finances and your free time and your work life and your family life or a closet with secret sins. And basically, what happens in the book is that Christ one day comes to the front door of your heart. And he says, may I come in? And he starts walking through the rooms of your heart. And he asks the question, has this been given over to me? Has your entire heart been given to me? It's a great, it was a great illustration to me of thinking through, okay, have I truly given over everything to Christ? Everything. Now ask yourself that question this morning. Look at your life. Think about your life, your family, your work. Have you given everything to him? Have you surrendered all? That's the Christian life. It's not just a commitment and show up here on Sundays. It's a surrender to him, all of who you are, a living and holy sacrifice, all of your heart, all of your soul, all of your mind, all of your strength, all of it given to him. So this morning, in a remarkable way, Mary of Bethany shows us 
what devotion looks like. And I want to show you this. I want you to see what true devotion looks like. And be thinking about this. Am I devoted to him as we walk through this? All right? Look at verse 1. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Remember, Jesus had raised Lazarus from the dead in John chapter 11, and then he had left Bethany. He had gone maybe 14 miles uh, to the northeast to a little village called Ephraim. He was basically hiding out there because the religious authorities wanted to kill him because all these people were believing in Jesus. And now six days before the Passover, so if we do a time reference on this, Jesus was crucified on the 14th day of Nisan. That was a what in the week? Friday, right? Good Friday. He was crucified on Friday, 14 Nisan, 30 AD. So you back up six days, we're Saturday night. So it's, the eve, it's right after the Sabbath has basically ended uh, the, the date would be 8 Nisan. And he comes to this town of Bethany, and Bethany was a suburb of Jerusalem. It was two miles to the east, and this is where Lazarus, Mary, Martha, this is where they all lived. Now, notice this word, circle this word, therefore, in verse 1. Remember, the old Bible study guide is when you see a therefore, you ask, what's it there for? right? Very simple biblical hermeneutic to understand. But why is it there? Why does he have to come to Bethany and then to Jerusalem for the Passover? The answer is theological, right? You remember John the Baptist, behold the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world? Remember Jesus was hiding out from the authorities. He knew they were out to get him, so why does he come to Jerusalem? Therefore, He's on a mission to go to the cross. That's why he's, therefore, coming to Jerusalem. That's why he's coming to Bethany. His hour is approaching. The hour that Jesus refers to over and over in John's gospel where he says, that is the hour where I will be arrested, where I will be crucified, and then raised from the dead. So he comes to Bethany, and they are hosting a dinner there for him. This is probably a celebration feast, right? Remember Lazarus? He's been raised from the dead. Do you think his attitude right now is dour or excited? Excited. He's thrilled to be alive. Wouldn't you be? Your family member's been raised from the dead. Jesus comes back. We're going to throw a party. We're going to have a dinner. So that's what they do. Look at verse 2. So they gave a dinner for him there. Um, the, the other gospel writers tell us that the, the house where they had the dinner was at a man's house named Simon the leper. Probably not still a leper, probably somebody who had also been healed by Jesus. So they had a dinner for him at Simon the leper's house. And Martha, in her typical fashion, she served. And Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. And then we're going to see in, in the next verse that Mary is the one who anoints his feet. Now, we shouldn't skip past verse 2, because this right here really is the foundation of devotion. You remember, John's gospel is symbolic in a sense, because you remember what Jesus does, the miracles are what? 
They're signs, Simeon. They point to something. You're supposed to see the miracle and then see the spiritual reality that the miracle is pointing to. So in the case of the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead, the spiritual miracle that that is supposed to describe is the new birth, the new life in Christ, that for every single Christian, you have a Lazarus experience where your old life has passed away and a new life has come, that you've been spiritually resurrected. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, Paul says, 2 Corinthians 5.17. So think about this. What is necessary then for you to give true devotion to Christ is that you must be born again. You must have the new life. When George Whitfield preached all up and down America to all these stuffy Anglicans, many of whom have never heard the gospel, he said over and over and over again, you must be born again. And they would ask him, why do you keep telling us that you must be born again? And he would say, because you must be born again. And his point with that is, that's, that's the do not pass go place on the monopoly board of the Christian life. You don't start the Christian life until you are born again. And the only way that you can be born again is through the preaching of the gospel. It's not clean up your life. It's not, hey, this is, these are some Christian principles to apply in your, in your daytimer. Christianity is about new birth. You remember what Jesus told Nicodemus? You must be born again. And that's the miracle of Christianity. And that's where Christianity starts. And then when you're born again, there's three components then that make up your life of discipleship. And you see them both here. You see all three of them here in, in the next two verses. First component you see with Martha is service. Martha served. Every Christian is called to serve. Second component is fellowship. Lazarus enjoyed being in Jesus' presence. He enjoyed the fellowship with Christ and the disciples. And then the third element that those lead to then is devotion or worship, which is seen by Mary pouring out this extravagant perfume. Real quick, let me just look at these. Let's think about these real quick because these lay the groundwork for the type of devotion that you are to have to Christ. So Martha models service, service to Christ. And this is such a fundamental part of the Christian life. It's fundamental to the kingdom. It's who Christ has called you to be. He's called you to be a servant. Jesus said in Mark 10, 43, but it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be a slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. In the Christian life, we are first a servant to Christ and then a servant to others. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 4.1 regarding the apostles, he says, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ. That's how you're to think about the apostles. You know, we think about the apostles as the expounders of doctrine. He says you are to think about us as servants of Christ. The Greek word he uses there is huperates. Huper means under, and aretes is a rower. It's an under rower. 
Remember those Greek war vessels? They didn't, you know, they would have those long oars sticking out. The under rower is is the the lowest possible servant on the bottom deck. He's the one with the 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 I guess you would say the shorter oar, but he's below all the other ones. He's a servant. He has a lowly position. And that's what Paul says. He says, this is how you are to regard the apostles, as under rowers of Christ, as servants of Christ. Paul says in Romans 12, 11, do not be sloth, slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. How often are we to serve? Paul says, 1 Corinthians 15, 58, always abounding in the work of the Lord, always, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So you're always to serve in the Christian life. How long are we to serve? Paul says, 2 Timothy 4, 6, for I'm already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Paul's point there is that the, the metric of my ministry, the metric of my service is faithfulness to the very end. I've been faithful to the end. You are to serve to the end. There's no retirement in the Christian life. You don't get to turn 67 and say, I'm done serving. I've done my part. It's now time for me to collect my pension. The Christian life is you serve as long as you can, as hard as you can, until Christ says you're canned. <laughs> until you're done, right? Until he calls you home. That's the Christian life. You, you serve um, in, until God says you're done. George Whitfield, he, he preached himself to death. I was thinking about this. He said just a few days before he died, people were saying, you got to stop preaching. He said, I would rather wear out than rust out. He preached a sermon the night of his death. He pushed on till the end. I saw this modeled so well in the life of my grandfather. He had a cancer diagnosis, leukemia. He's 80-something years old, still showing up two weeks before he died, teaching his Sunday school class every week. I will be faithful to the end. That's the Christian life is you serve. And then, this is, this is the good stuff. You enjoy fellowship. Lazarus enjoys the fellowship of Christ. He just, you know, Christ had raised him from the dead, and he just enjoyed being with Christ and with the disciples. Think about how special that would be, to sit there and enjoy talking to the Lord Jesus Christ and all the disciples. I would give my right arm for that meal, wouldn't you? That's the fellowship. That's, that's the good stuff. And, and that's what we enjoy in the Christian life. Jesus says in John 14, 3, that where I am, you may be also. He's, Paul says, 1 Corinthians 1, 9, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So Lazarus enjoyed this fellowship, and we enjoy this fellowship. Now, we don't get to sit down and have coffee with the Lord. He's in heaven, but we get to enjoy his spirit mediated to us through the person of the Holy Spirit. That's why Jesus in John's gospel later on, he's going to say, it's actually better that I go so that way I can send the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit will bring my presence 
to all of the disciples. This is what he says. This is John 14, 16. He says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. So how do you enjoy the fellowship of Christ now? Somebody were to ask you, how do I enjoy the fellowship of Christ now? Well, primarily through three ways. One, through the word of God. Through the word of God, you, the Holy Spirit brings the presence of Christ to you through his word. And also through prayer. That's how we commune with God. We, give, we lay up our fears and our burdens and our requests to God. So we're supposed to enjoy this fellowship, not just part of the time, but all the time. Psalmist says, David says, Psalm 1-2, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. So we're to meditate on the word of God day and night. Paul says, 1 Thessalonians 5-17, pray without ceasing. So which one is it? Are we to meditate on God's word all the time or pray all the time? It's both. And then, writer of Hebrews says, Hebrews 10, 25, that we are to not neglect the assembling together, that we're to come together and enjoy the fellowship with all the saints. So we're to enjoy this fellowship with Christ. And this should be a habit in your life. I saw this little clip with Arnold Schwarzenegger. He was talking about, as you would expect, lifting weights. And he said, uh, he said this, every morning... I go out and I feed my animals. He, says, he has these funny little donkeys. And then he goes, I go, to the, I go to the gym and I lift weights. And then he said this. I thought, I thought it was intuitive. He said, I don't think about it. It's my habit. I don't, I don't have to think about it. It's my habit. That should be the, the, the fellowship with God for you. You don't have to think about it. You commune with God like you breathe air. You get up in the morning and you go to your Bible. It's not, oh, I have to think about the checklist for the day and I need to put my Bible. No, you're there. You delight in reading the Word of God. You delight in praying. You shouldn't have to put this on a to-do list. You should be reading your Bible through every year, automatic. You don't have to think about it. It's there. It's a habit. You commune with God because that's the fellowship that he's brought you into. He, he died so you can enjoy this. This is eternal life that they may know the Father and Jesus Christ whom he sent. This is the essence of the Christian life is that you enjoy and delight in God through his word in prayer and with the saints. So you serve, you enjoy that fellowship and guess what those lead to? When you are serving and when you are enjoying the fellowship of Christ, that leads to worship. That leads to devotion. And that's the second point I want you to see, are the elements of devotion. The elements of devotion. What does devotion then look like? This is really the highest point of the Christian life. Devotion is the apex of the Christian life. It's, it's the end game of our service and of our, our fellowship. One commentator said this about specifically what Mary does here. He says, Mary's actions express what others did not have the words to voice, 
but it filled the whole house with the fragrance of her love, and as such would continue to spread through the preaching of the gospel in the whole world. So this is what our worship is to look like here in spirit and truth. Verse 3. Look at verse 3. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Now, the first thing I want you to see about our devotion then in the Christian life is that it's necessary, that it's necessary. Again, look at that word, therefore. Why is it there? Why is it there? Why? John is saying she therefore did this. She anointed his feet. It's necessary for Mary as a response to the presence of Jesus Christ. Here's a principle I want you to understand. When you see God, you cannot help but worship him. That, that is a principle that is always true in the Bible. Whenever, just watch the encounters that people have with God in Scripture and look at their reactions. It is a hard and fast rule that when you encounter God, you fall on your face before him. It's always true. You remember when Jesus calmed the storm on the Sea of Galilee? Matthew records, Matthew 14, 33, those in the boat worshiped him, saying, truly you are the Son of God. When Jesus unveiled his glory on the Mount of Transfiguration, the disciples fell down before him. When Moses saw the glory of God, he falls down. That is the natural response to seeing God. And so for Mary, remember Jesus said in John eleven forty, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God when Lazarus is raised? Mary had put the dots together when she saw Lazarus resurrected, and she saw the glory of Christ. She saw the glory of Christ. And because she saw him for who he is, her heart then overflowed with worship, with worship. So this is so critical if you think about the implications of this. The key to worship is seeing the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the key. That's the key. And churches have forgotten this. And they think, well, we got to try and keep the people here so we'll entertain them. We'll turn this service into a show. Sure, people might be entertained. Here's the problem with that. You don't see Christ. And until you see Christ through his word, you're not going to worship. So yeah, I know it's more difficult. You have to sit there. You have to think. You have to use your mind. You have to listen. You have to look at the Bible. But what happens is, is as you're looking at this, all of a sudden a spark goes off in your heart. You see him in the power of the Holy Spirit. And what begins to happen in your heart? You begin to worship. That's why Paul, when he's writing his epistles, you, you read through Romans and he'll be writing and he'll be talking about Christ. And then all of a sudden he'll just stop. Like in Romans 11, at the end, he says, For from him and through him and to him are all things. What happened there for him? He saw Christ. So when you see Christ then, 
devotion is necessary. It happens. And so, therefore, the fight in your life, the fight in the church, is to see him. And that's when the worship really begins to take place. You worship him out of the overflow of your heart. Next we see, not only is devotion necessary, it's extravagant. Our devotion to Christ is to be extravagant. Look at what Mary brings to Jesus to anoint him with. She took a pound, which would be about 12 ounces then, not 16 ounces, of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus. Judas says later that this perfume would cost 300 denarii. That would be an entire year's wages for a working man, an entire year's wages. This is a very expensive bottle of perfume. Mark says in Mark 14.3, it is very costly. So she takes a pound of this ointment. Mark also tells us it was in an alabaster flask. So it was basically a white gypsum, gypsum flask uh, or translucent. Even, even the, uh, the bottle would have been considered a luxury item. And she poured it all out on our Lord. The other gospels say that she anointed his head. So she anoints his head and then the the nard, the perfume, flowed all the way down his body, all the way down to his feet. And when she got to his feet, she wiped his feet with the perfume with her hair. She exhausted all of this perfume. And what you're supposed to see here, and what Jesus is put, pointing at, is that Mary's devotion to the Lord is extravagant. Did she pour some of it out or all of it out? All of it. She poured it all out. All of it. And I was thinking this week, remember Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira? I was thinking about that contrast. Remember they sold a field and they came to the apostles and they said, here's the money for the field. Ananias did first. They said, no, no, no. Peter says, I know by the Holy Spirit, that's not the entire worth of the field. It's not saying you have to give everything, but he said he gave everything, right? And God strikes him down dead. Sapphira comes back later. Peter says, did you buy the field for such and such money? She said, yes. And Peter says, the, the people who just finished burying your husband are coming to take you. The problem with Ananias and Sapphira is that they had lost the vision of Christ. They just started going through the motions in their devotional life. They said, we'll give some, but we want to just, we want to keep, keep back part of our devotion, part of our heart. We want to keep it back from the Lord. Such a contrast, isn't it, with Mary, whose devotion is full on. But that's how our worship should be, because... When you understand who Christ is, then you understand that who Christ is demands all of who you are. All of who you are. Our worship should be the most extravagant worship because we have the most extravagant Savior. I saw a quote from MacArthur. He said, quote, worship is giving all that we are 
because of all that he is, end quote. Remember the hymn, The Wonderful Cross, closes, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Should be extravagant. Think about if our worship is truly extravagant, think about the difference that that would make in the world. That we laid it all out for Christ. The whole world worships, right? Everybody's a worshiper. Everybody's worshiping. God made us to worship. The problem is the world is worshiping idols. We're worshiping the real McCoy. So how much more should our extravagant worship be than the world? Should be, it should just be overflow, overflowing. It should be doxological. The next thing I want you to see is that our devotion is to be humble. Our devotion is to be humble. When your vision is on Christ, one of the effects of that is that you think of yourself less. When your eyes are on Christ, you stop thinking about yourself. It's not that you think lowly of yourself per se, although we should because we're sinners, but you lose yourself in Christ. You see his grandeur and your nothingness, and that's called humility. Christians are always humble. Remember Jesus said, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So you think about here what Mary does. Here's a party. We know it's at Simon the leper's house. He's there. We know the disciples are there. We know Martha's there. We know Lazarus is there. We, we know from the other gospels that other people are there. Mary doesn't care. She comes before the whole party and does this. And that requires humility. She doesn't care what people think about her. She is devoted. And that's what our devotion should be like. We shouldn't be thinking about, what, what, are, what are they saying about me, about my devotion to Christ? You know, if, if I do this, they're going to they're, they're gonna think I'm a little off. No. We're looking full on at Christ. You remember when the Ark of the Covenant came back into Israel and David danced before the Ark? I mean, David went crazy before the Ark. Uh, this, is, this is what... Uh, the writer of 2 Samuel says, 2 Samuel 6, 14, and David danced before the Lord with all his might. That was the extent of his devotion. And his wife was up in a room, and she saw David dancing before the Ark of the Covenant. And when David finished bringing the Ark in to Jerusalem, do you remember what she said? She said, you've embarrassed me. You've embarrassed your position. The way that you were worshiping the Lord was undignified for a king. And do you remember David's response? He said, I will make myself yet more contemptible than this, and I will be a base in your eyes. You see, he didn't care, and neither should you. We worship an audience of how many? One. One. All that matters is what Christ thinks. I have been crucified to the world. The world has been crucified to me, Paul says, Galatians 6. What matters is what Christ thinks. Now, look at this. Look at this humility. So Mary comes. She anoints Jesus in front of everyone. And not only does she anoint his head, John 
pay special attention to the fact that she anoints Jesus's feet, something humbling in and of itself. And not only does she anoint Jesus's feet, but the way that she anoints Jesus's feet is with her hair. Think about the humility here. Fascinating connection. Paul says in 1 Corinthians eleven fifteen that a woman's hair is her glory. She takes her glory and she puts her glory on the Lord's feet, wiping his feet with this fragrance. She worshiped humbly before an audience of one. And that's when the heart of worship happens. That's when, the, when worship really happens, when you say, I forget what the world thinks of me. I'm going with Christ. Forget what they say. I don't care if they're murmuring in the back room. I don't care if they write something up in the News and, news and Observer about me. I'm going with him. That's what I care about. And then, finally, devotion is preeminent meaning it's the ultimate priority. It is the ultimate priority for the Christian. It is the highest priority in the Christian life. Look at verse 8. Jesus says, For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. What Jesus is saying there, because Judas raised this whole thing. Well, you know, shouldn't we give this money to the poor? Shouldn't this money be used to advance the mission? Shouldn't, be, shouldn't this money be used to, to, to help the homeless? Jesus says, look, the first priority is me. The first priority is worship. And that's why Jesus commends this woman's actions, because devotion to Christ is her highest and ultimate priority. Now, one of the ways that things have gotten wonky in the church is people have said, and, 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 and there's a good heart behind this, they've said, reaching people for Christ is the highest priority. Or they've said, helping the poor is the highest priority, or fill in the blank. Actually, those aren't the highest priority. Worship is the highest priority. It's the devotion to Christ. It's the doxological end of the church that is the highest priority, to bring him glory. And when you get the priorities right, what happens is, is people's hearts are overflowing with Christ, and the outflow is, is they want to go out and spread the name of Christ and evangelize. They want to go out and help the poor. They want to go as missionaries to other countries. They want to serve as professors in Bible colleges. They want to serve because Christ is their love. But if you take away their love, what happens over time is people fizzle out. They fizzle out because they misplace the priority. So the church, we gather to worship. This isn't primarily an evangelistic service or event. It is for the saints to worship Christ. And what, ha what should happen is, is your heart should be overflowing with seeing Christ, that you leave here then on mission for Christ to tell others about him. But, th but this is not an evangelistic event. This is a worship event. Now, 
if a lost person comes here, of course I want them to hear the gospel and be saved. And the gospel is all through what we do. So yes, I want people to come to know Christ here. But that's not the primary reason why we're here. Does that make sense? It's for worship. And Mary understood this. She got it. She saw Christ and she said, this is, this is the real thing that we're here to do is to, to show our affections for him and to worship him. So those are the elements of our devotion. We saw that before that the essentials, essentials of our devotion. And then third and finally, I want you to see this. This is, this is really important we understand. This is the enemy of our devotion. This is what takes away from our devotion to Christ. Look at verse 4. But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him said, Why has this ointment not been sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Now, when I read this this week, just looking at this, this verse sent chills down my spine. Think about this momentarily with me. Here you have the reality of a disciple, one of Jesus's disciples, Judas Iscariot. He was with our Lord for three years. He was with our Lord at the Sermon on the Mount. He was with our Lord at the feeding of the 5,000. He was with our Lord in the boat when he calmed the sea. He was with our Lord when he raised Lazarus from the dead. And yet he completely misses Christ completely misses Christ. There's so many like that. Raised in the church all their life. Sunday school. Prayer meetings. Fellowship. Suppers. You know, the whole thing. Completely miss Christ. Completely missed him. Um, Ju- Judas missed the glory of Christ. And others apparently, this is what Mark tells us, Mark 14, 4, Others at the party said the same thing. Why has this ointment been wasted like that? So Judas essentially echoes what others at the party are saying. But inherent in Judas's statement, think about this, is that Jesus is unworthy of the devotion that has been given to him. Jesus is unworthy. This money should have been spent on the poor. Now John gives us this note in verse 6. He said this, Judas said this, not because he cared about the poor. Really, that, that was just a, a, a distraction. That was a Trojan horse. It wasn't really about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Now, in that verse, I think, you see the enemy of devotion to Christ. What stands in your way of being truly and completely devoted to Christ is very simple. It's yourself. What stands in your way of complete devotion to Christ is yourself. That's what stands in your way. Judas, very smart individual. He was the only disciple from Judea, the southern region around Jerusalem. He obviously had, a, had natural accounting 
and managerial abilities. You know, I would think Matthew or Levi, who was a tax collector, I would think, okay, you know, this guy gets saved. He's now the money guy, right? That's what I would think that, but Judas became the money guy. So he obviously had some sort of natural ability. He was trusted to, to keep the finances. But something happened to him along the way with Judas. He kept waiting for Jesus to usher in a political kingdom. And he kept saying to himself, you know what he kept saying to himself? This is all great what Jesus is doing, but you know what I really want out of this? My own piece of the pie. That's what I really deserve. I, I, I need that. I deserve that. I need to get something from Jesus. And apparently Jesus wasn't just handing out money to him, so he said, I'm just going to start taking a little bit from the bag. Because really, at the end of the day, I need to make sure that I get mine. That's Judas's philosophy. He stood in the way of his own devotion to Christ because he wanted his. Application, implication. Think about American Christianity and how the churches are set up. Think about the prosperity gospel. It's a Judas religion. You come, you give a little money, and you get yours. People are showing up to Lakewood and Houston not to worship Christ. Why are they showing up? I want money. Show me the money. That's why they're showing up. It's a false Christianity because at its root, it completely displaces Christ as the object of devotion. What did Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? Seek first the kingdom, and then all these things will be added to you. You don't come to Jesus seeking money. You seek him. And same with the seeker churches. I know I'm going off on the seeker churches this morning, but the seeker churches say, come to Jesus and your felt needs will be taken care of. You want to be a better parent? You want a better marriage? You want a better bank account? You want a better job? Come to Jesus. He'll fix those things. Well, he might fix those things, but that's not why you come to Jesus. You come to Jesus for Jesus. He's the treasure. The, Jesus said, Matthew 13, the kingdom of God is like a man who was walking in a field, came across a buried treasure, sold everything that he had, and bought that field so that he could possess that treasure. That's the kingdom. The kingdom is not you getting rich from Jesus. And if you think that, then you've completely misunderstood Christianity. I'm serious. Jesus says, you come to me for me, not you. And guess what? When you come to him, come to him that way for him, the byproduct is, is that you are filled with joy. But you have to let go of what you're holding on to. Rich young ruler you come to me. I want you to come to me. I want you to follow me. But first go sell everything that you have. Give it to the poor and then come follow me. Let go of what's in your hands and then you'll possess me. That's what Jesus is saying. So Judas stood in the way of Judas. Don't let yourself stand in the way of yourself offering true devotion to Christ. Don't stand in your own way. Don't treat Jesus like a genie. Jesus, I'm here on Sunday. What are you going to give me? You come to Jesus for him. And then you will find 
that there are infinite blessings at his right hand. I think when America rediscovers this is when we're going to have the true revival. When we rediscover extravagant worship and a focus on the cross. Look at this focus on the cross, verse 8. Jesus says, For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. He's talking about his mission. He is going to the cross. He is going to the tomb, and he will be raised. This is this is the, the point of what Mary has done. Is she has anointed him. She has prepared him for burial because he is going to give his life for sinners. Now, what's amazing about Christianity, what's amazing about Christianity is that Christ is infinitely worthy of our worship as is. Right? Jesus is infinitely worthy of worship right there at that party with Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. But then what does Jesus do? He goes to the cross to die to save sinners. He's infinitely worthy of himself, of worship. But then this infinitely worthy Savior gives himself for unworthy people. So how can we not worship him? The one who is infinitely worthy gave himself for you, who is unworthy. Wow. I, I just melt under that. Listen to what Edward said. He said, quote, God is infinitely and most worthy of regard. The worthiness of others is nothing to his, so that to him belongs all possible respect. To him belongs the whole of the respect that any moral agent, either God or any intelligent being, is capable of. To him belongs all the heart. He is worthy of all of our devotion and praise. So what would it look like if we rediscovered this? True worship. All of your heart. Not just here on Sunday mornings, but when you leave here, your life is his. All of it. And then when we gather here, I don't know how many there are here, but when we gather here together and our hearts are overflowing with devotion to him, we're here for him, how do you think the Holy Spirit's going to use that? He's going to use it in tremendous ways. Who knows? With God, all things are possible. So let's seek him. It be, the revival begins with you, devoting yourself to God. And let's not stop seeking him. Let's run the race through to the end. Will you? Run it through. Seek him. Devote your life to him. Life is short, will soon be past. Only what's done for Christ will last. Heavenly Father, we desire to seek you with all of who we are. To live lives of service, fellowship, and then ultimately devotion. That we pour out our souls in worship to the living Christ, who is infinitely worthy of all of our praise 
in all of our adoration. Lord, would you do a mighty work in our midst? Would you raise our hearts to the level that they need to be to give proper praise and honor to you? And we ask this for your glory. Amen. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, information, and events, check out our website at capitalcommunitychurch.com.